Well, good morning. How is everybody this morning? You've had your coffee this morning. Hey, glad you're here. Glad you are uh, worshiping with us this morning. If this is your first time with us. Uh, we are doing something just a little bit different this morning. Typically what we do is we do books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We really don't deviate from that a lot. But the past six weeks we've been in this series where we were looking at the teachings of Jesus in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So today we will be in the Gospel of John, chapter 15. So if you've got your Bible, I invite you to turn there uh, with us. And, and, and really what we're doing with this series, when we're talking about the countercultural teachings of Jesus, is we're hanging our hat on this idea. That to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to be a Christian, because all that word really means is someone that's like Jesus. The way to do that is to follow the example of Christ and the teachings of Jesus. Because I don't know if you know this or not, we live in a culture that's about 70% or at least claims 70% to be Christian. But then we look at the teachings of Jesus in the Gospels and we look at the life of Jesus in the Gospels and we have to be honest and say there's a bit of a disconnect there. And so in week one, we talked about how culture says you guys have to follow your heart or follow your dreams. And Jesus said, no, you follow me. And the second week, we talked about American consumerism and how Jesus said, no, don't store up treasures here, store up treasures in heaven. And then we talked about Jesus saying being a servant, but, but we tend to live in a bit of a self-serving culture and context. And then last week, Corey talked about loving our neighbor. And this is what he said. He said that Jesus taught that we are to understand what true love is. That right now we live in a context and a culture where you can just take that word love and twist it to mean whatever you want it to mean. But the Bible has a very clear definition and understanding of what love is. And then Christ turns that around and says you're to demonstrate that love to all of the people that are around you. It doesn't matter if they look different than you or act different than you or believe different than you. You're supposed to show them love because they're your neighbor. And you're supposed to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And this, week, this is where we're headed. It's a, just a little bit different, but I think it's important for us to understand. Um, I, I just want all of us to be honest in this room. We're, we're going to be honest today. There is, in every person in this room this morning, and I would argue every person on planet Earth, a disconnect between who we are and who we want to be. Like, there is a part of us that if we're truly, truly honest we play a version of ourselves for a lot of the people around us, and who we really are on the inside is a far cry sometimes from that version of ourselves we play for the people around us. Like, it doesn't matter what you may think about the person next to you, that you may think they've got it all together and they're perfect. I promise you, there are inconsistencies, there are shortcomings, and there are struggles in every person in this room. And the more honest we are about that, the freer we become. Because if all this is, is us coming into church and wearing the mask and trying to impress each other, then it's not really about Jesus, it's about ourselves. So the million dollar question, if this is the case, and I know that it is, is this question that all philosophies and mindsets and religions in the world try to answer, and it's this, how do we change? If in all of us there is a disconnect between who we really are and who we want to be or maybe who we're pretending to be for the people around us, how do we change? How do we become a better person? How do I become a better husband and a better father? And for those of us that are followers of Jesus, there's this question. How do we grow in Christ? And how do we live lives that honor and please God? If Jesus gave us commands, if Jesus gave us ways to live, how do I do that? Is it just me kind of white-knuckling it and pulling myself up my own bootstraps and just kind of committing to it and sticking with it? Or did Jesus give a different answer? And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. So if you got your Bible, John chapter 15. Everybody, everybody doing okay this morning? 
Yeah, okay. You were really loud at first, and you got really quiet, and that scared me. So, yeah, you, you can talk back today. That's okay. I kind of need that a little bit. So, last night at the five, like, it was really hot, and so people came in and just kind of felt the AC and just catatonic. So, um, I'm glad you're alive. I'm glad you're, you've got coffee, so you're caffeinated this morning. Hey, let's pray, and then we'll dive right into the text. God, we are so grateful um, just to be in this room this morning. We're grateful that we live in a nation where we have the freedom and the opportunity to do this. And Lord, we are grateful for this nation, but God, we're burdened for this nation as well. And so we lift them up to you, God. We are, we are in the midst of a, a um, very dark season in our history. And so God, we need you. We need your presence. We need your power. We need your church to start becoming your church and being your church and living this out. And so we ask this morning that you would change us before anything else. Lord, let us look in the mirror before we point a finger. I pray this morning, God, your Holy Spirit would do a work in my life, and you do work in my heart, you do work in my spirit. I pray, God, that we today would look deeply at the face of Jesus, and as we look at the face of Jesus, may it change us and conform us to make us look more like him. God, we pray for every other church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, Lord, that is meeting this morning, that is diving into your word. God, if they proclaim that Jesus is Lord, we pray that you would bless them, you keep your hand on them, you bless those pastors, you cause them to grow. And Lord, we just ask, God, that your kingdom would be united and unified as a unified front. God, we love you and we thank you. Speak to us this morning through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 15, starting in verse 5. This is Jesus. He's speaking to his disciples. This is what he says. He says, I'm the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Now already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So this section of Jesus' teaching was given to the disciples on the night he was betrayed and arrested, just after celebrating the Passover meal. So we looked at John chapter 13 a couple of weeks ago and, and saw how Jesus modeled servant leadership when he got down to wash their feet. And so this section of scripture, these passages in the gospel of John, he's telling them what their lives as followers of Jesus should look like when he ascends into heaven. And so in this teaching, Jeebus, Jeebus, Jesus, <laughs> that guy we worship, right? Jesus, not Jeebus. I don't know who that is. Jesus, <laughs> sorry, emphasizes two truths. First is, he, he says this, the importance of our personal and intimate relationship with him. That this is quintessential to understanding who we are as his followers. And it's not just about us doing things for him. It's about being united to him in a personal and intimate way. And then the second is, he talks about every one of us have a mission from God to bear fruit. And the problem is sometimes we divorce the two. We only look at one half of the equation. Some of us look at only number two. We say, man, as long as I just do things for God, I'm square with God. I just got to like be in church when it matters. I just got to love my neighbor kind of sometimes and, and tip my hat to the man upstairs and bow my head and close my eyes at football games when we pray. And that's all that really matters. And we forget about that first side of the coin. And then others of us look along 
that first side of the coin, this personal intimate relationship with Jesus, and we say things like, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. And so kind of all that means is that I kind of get to make up what that means and I get to figure out what's important and what's not. And it's about me feeling warm and fuzzy. And really Jesus was saying, you can't divorce these two. If you have a personal, intimate relationship with Christ, this will result in fruit in your life. And if you're missing one side of that, you're not really looking and paying attention to what Jesus said. So he turns to these guys and he says, I'm the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Now to us, this imagery of vines and branches seems a little bit foreign, but to these guys, these 12 disciples, this would have been very familiar to them because these guys were Jews. And in the Old Testament, Israel was regularly depicted as a vine. We see this in Psalm 80 and Isaiah 5 and Jeremiah 2. And God was depicted as the owner of that vineyard. See, a vine's purpose, no matter who's planting the vine, is to bear fruit. If you buy an apple tree and you plant it in your orchard, or you buy a grapevine and you put it in your garden, the point and the purpose of that thing is so that it will bear fruit for its owner. And often in the prophetic literature in the Old Testament, Israel was rebuked for failing to bear fruit. God would say, I redeemed you out of your bondage to slavery in the hands of the Egyptians. I took you to the promised land. And I've set you up so that you could bless the people around you, that you could take care of the poor, so that you could bring glory to the true God of heaven. And you guys aren't doing that. And so when Jesus turns to these guys and says, I'm the true vine, there, there's a messianic interpretation there. What he was saying is that he is the Messiah would bring about the fruit that Israel had failed to produce, that he would come and he would live the life completely obedient to the commands of God because he was God, and he would live the life that they could not live and die the death that they deserved so that he could graft them into himself and then they could bear fruit because they're filled with his Holy Spirit. And so the followers of Jesus, both Jew and Gentile, are simply branches off of the vine. The life source is Christ. You don't go up to an apple tree and break off a branch and then stick that branch in the yard and say, all right, let's get ready for apples. That's not how it works. The only way we can produce fruit is if we are connected to the life source and nothing in this life can save you or change you if you're disconnected from the life source that is Christ. And this is what that imagery of vines and branches was referring to. And he says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. So let's look at this, this word picture a little bit more. If a branch's purpose is to bear fruit, and the vine dresser's purpose, this is God, God is the vine dresser, is to ensure maximum fruit production, two things that this vine dresser would do is that unfruitful branches, the ones that aren't actually doing anything, kind of withering away and taking up space, he cuts them off. And then branches that are bearing fruit are pruned. They're cut back in order that they may bear more fruit. Now, if we really understand what Jesus is saying, this is like really sobering and it's a little bit difficult to grasp. And it causes us to, if we're really paying attention, like kind of sit up and be like, whoa, he's really saying that? But it's something we can't skip over. It's not something we can change or modify or twist in a certain way just because it's difficult or uncomfortable. And here's what he's saying. This is a metaphor for those that aren't truly in Christ that don't produce fruit for Christ, those things will be cut off. I mean, they'll, they'll fall away. Like, we'll, we'll find out that they, they never really had 
a relationship with Jesus when the temperature and the pressure gets turned up, or worse yet, they'll live in a state of false assurance until the day of judgment, thinking that they're good with God, they're square with God because they're, they're doing all the right things of, of external religion, but in, inward in their heart, there's not really true saving faith. And one of those sobering passages of Scripture that I hope we look at and we don't just skim over, we don't just take it lightly is Matthew 7, 22 and 23, that on the day of judgment, many people will stand before Jesus and they'll say, Lord, we did this in your name. We did all the religion things. We, we, I, I cast out demons in your name. I did this in your name. And Jesus says on that day, I'll look at them and say, I don't, I don't even know who you are. So we have to ask ourselves when we see these sections of scripture, am I truly grafted into the vine? Do I have saving Faith. I mean, this weird thing in the South, when the preacher starts talking about being saved, we think, oh man, yeah, that's like kindergarten Christianity. I prayed the prayer when I was eight. I didn't want to go to hell. But really, if we look at biblically what we're called to do as believers, we're called to examine the fruit of our lives and ask ourselves the question, am I bearing fruit that makes me look like Jesus? Because if I'm not... Maybe I need to go back to square one and ask, am I truly in the vine, connected to the life source? But then he says, those that are truly in Christ, those that truly are connected to the life source that is Jesus, they're pruned, meaning they're disciplined, they're corrected, and they're trained by God through the word of God for maximum fruitfulness. Now, pruning is an appropriate metaphor. I don't know if you've ever seen someone with pruning shears or a pruning knife that literally cutting things off of a plant or a tree. And this is an appropriate metaphor because this process or churchy word for it is sanctification, being set apart by God for the purposes of God. This hurts. Like it's sometimes really, really slow. Like we don't understand why we're still struggling with the same things today that we were a year ago. And we don't understand why this is, God will not let up on certain things. Like every time we come to church, like we just hear God talking about the same thing over and over again. And we're like, God, just let me off the hook. Like, please. Sometimes it's confusing. We don't understand why God is trying to cut things out of our life. We don't understand why he wants us to get rid of that habit or that relationship. Or, and sometimes it is, not sometimes, it's always painful. Because it's pruning. But the scriptures say that God prunes us because he loves us. It says in the Bible that God disciplines the one he loves, like a father does his kids. And what God reveals in you, he wants to heal in you. So many of us think that discomfort in and of itself is a horrible thing. Sometimes discomfort can lead to life. If you women in here have had children, you can attest to that. Sometimes discomfort brings us to places that we really need to be. And it's the same way in this pruning process. Sometimes God will not let you off the hook and will keep pushing and pushing and pushing until complete surrender happens because he loves you and he wants more for you than you want for yourself. And in the moment, you have a choice. God is the one that prunes. God is the one that fixes. God is the one that saves. However, you can make a choice to either surrender to that process and let him do his work, or you can impede that process. You can quench the Holy Spirit, as the Bible says. Or you feel the conviction of the Lord and the Holy Spirit, and then you leave not intending to do anything about it. Jesus says, abide in me, and I 
in you, and as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, neither can you. Jesus uses this word abide. Other translations might say remain or continue, but that word abide, remain, continue, whatever it is, appears 40 times in the Gospel of John. So if Jesus says one word 40 times in the Gospel, we gotta sit up and take attention and understand like, okay, this might be really important. This is a crucial understanding of our role as a follower of Jesus. And that word, abide or remain, suggests this effortless resting in the Lord. I mean, I can't do anything to save, fix, or redeem me. I can't make him love me anymore, make, me, make him love me any less. I'm gonna rest in who he is because I believe he's good and I'm gonna be confident in the union between the vine and the branches. And when we rest in our identity as belonging to Jesus, this, this does something in us. Like, I don't know if anybody else is wrecked by that song, I'm no longer a slave to fear, I'm a child of God. Like, when I hear that, man, like, you, you don't know the, the depths and the darkness of my heart. I do, though. I know I have struggled my whole life with trying to perform for people and trying to make you like me. And I've lived as a slave many times in my life under that weight of trying to impress people and get their approval and their applause. And so when I sing that, that it is not me being a slave to what you think about me, but rather my identity is not from what you think about me or say about me, from what he says about me, that I'm his son and it has nothing to do with me. It's everything to do with the sacrifice that he bore for me on that cross. That produces something in me when I rest in that identity. What it produces in me is an ongoing faith. Man, I know he's been faithful to get me to this point. I can look in my future and know he doesn't change. And I can believe him for that. And that faith produces in me obedience because I know he's good. I know he's going to be there for me. So what he asked for me to do is also good. And so even if I don't understand it, I'm going to obey him. And that results in fruit in my lives. All of a sudden, I start doing what he asked me to do when I rest in who I am in him. But on the other hand, when we work for God while being disconnected from a life-giving relationship with Jesus, this cannot produce true God-honoring, Christ-exalting fruit. If it's all about us just following a list of do's and don'ts, I don't cuss, smoke, drink, or chew, or hang around the girls that do, right? It's this list of things I'm not supposed to do and list of things I am supposed to do. I am supposed to bow my head at mealtime. I am supposed to be at church for an hour on Sunday mornings. Don't know why. Maybe mama told me to once upon a time. That's what I'm supposed to do. That doesn't do anything for God or the kingdom of God because we're doing it for ourselves. That is moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralism. It's just do's and don'ts. Therapeutic. It makes me feel really good. Deism. God isn't really a part of my life. He's just kind of sequestered to the corner, and I'll call him when I need him. We're called to be more than that and to do more than that. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. See, this is the great paradox of our faith. You and I will do more for the kingdom of God when we focus on being rather than doing you're not a human doing. You're a human being. And when our focus becomes being his and knowing him, his spirit transforms our hearts and our lives in such a way that we begin to change and we begin to live lives that look like Jesus. But when we attempt to please and obey him apart from a relationship with him, that's a fool's errand. 
There were two sisters in the Bible, Martha and Mary. Now, sometimes we kind of see that as a Christian personality test, right? I'm just a Martha, that's me. And we forget that like Jesus actually like chastises Martha and says, Martha, you're sinning. Martha is the one that's busy doing stuff for Jesus, sweeping the floor and making him a casserole. And Mary is the one sitting at the feet of Jesus and saying, man, I just want to know you. Man, you're God. I, I, I can only be changed by you when I sit at your feet and gaze into your face. And so many times we think it's just about following a list of do's and don'ts, but rather pleasing and obeying him is abiding in him. So how do we do that? How do practically we live this out? What is Jesus actually saying? Well, the first thing he's saying is that faith in Christ is so much more than just maybe praying a prayer when you were eight to stay out of hell. Salvation, according to the word of God and the teachings of Jesus, is about being personally united to Christ through his grace by saving faith. We examine our lives and we ask, do I want all of him and does he have all of me? If I put my finger on the pulse of my spirit, does it beat my will be done or does it beat thy will be done? Am I submitting to him as my Lord and my Savior and my everything or am I seeing him as just kind of this added addition to my pre-existing lifestyle that I was going to live with or without him? That when we have true saving faith, it results in a vibrant life-giving relationship. And then when we do, it's not just something we do one time. It's not just walking an aisle or praying a prayer. It is a daily habit of resting on and leaning into the love of Christ. Because we daily contemplate the cross. Like so many times in church, we get like so been out of shape about revelation and eschatology and when's Jesus coming back and how's he going to do it? And are you pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib? I mean, I don't know. Let's figure it out. And we spend so much time figuring that out. Listen, when you get to heaven... All of those questions are going to be answered in a split second. And you're going to go, oh, but I promise you, you will spend an eternity pondering and contemplating and still not arriving at an answer of how glorious the sacrifice the cross was for you and for me. And so we need to make our focus not on these silly, they're not silly, they're important, but they're not main, they're secondary. Your focus every day should be growing deeper and contemplating his love for you, the cross and receiving assurance from the Holy Spirit. You do that through prayer and you do that through the word of God. Sometimes we say, well, I mean, you just said like we're supposed to abide, we're supposed to rest in God. I mean, that kind of sounds like legalism, right? Look, when I am working out in the yard and I'm like dirty and I've got stuff all over me, I know that I can't make myself clean. It's only the shower that's gonna make me clean. But I also know the shower is not gonna like magically, magnetically take my clothes off and get me underneath the shower spigot. I've got to be the one that takes action and positions myself under the spigot of God's grace and his mercy to let him wash me and clean me and make me into the man I need to be. That's where spiritual discipline comes in. And that's not legalism, that's love. I love my wife, and so because I love my wife, I'm going to make time for her to talk to her, take her out on dates, to go on walks. And when we fall in love with Jesus and we rest in his identity, we make it a priority in our lives to spend time with him so we can rest under the fountain of his grace and mercy and he can change us. But it's also found in obedience. We obey his commands. Sometimes obedience doesn't rely solely on whether we feel like it or not. 
We just do it. How many of you, if you have kids and you ask your kids to clean their room, you're not waiting for them to receive this great revelation of, I want to clean my room. <laughs> yes. Come in and you say, hey, we need to clean your room. Well, I didn't really, I, didn't, I wasn't feeling it today, mom. As children of God, if God commands us to do something like serve people, love people, make disciples, why do we sit around and just wait to feel it first? Maybe we should just do it. We'll talk about that here in a bit. And, and we also surrender to his pruning. It means when we come into church and the Holy Spirit convicts us, or we're having our quiet time and the Lord convicts us, or we're talking with someone the Lord convicts us, we don't quench the Holy Spirit or push it away, but rather we lean into it and we surrender to him changing us and making us look more like Jesus, even if it hurts, even if it's slow and it's confusing, because no good thing comes without a process and an effort. So to truly change according to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to truly become a better person, right? That's what people ask me all the time. Man, I'm just trying to be a good person. I just want to be a better person. Well, to truly do that according to the gospel, step one is you have to recognize your inability to change anything about yourself. This isn't about you just kind of white knuckling. This is about you looking down deep into yourself and saying, man, I'm not the answer. I'm the problem. I can't fix myself, I can't change myself, but I know the one who can. And in our lives, when we realize that, we draw closer to Christ. It's not trying harder, it's coming closer to the only thing that can change us or fix us or redeem us. So, so this is what the gospel says. This is at the core of everything Jesus was about. He would often come to super religious people who didn't think that they needed him and say, man, I've come for the sick. I've come for the poor in spirit. I've come from the people that like have no delusions about their own power. Those are the people that know they need me. So then we look at American culture and we have to ask if this is what the gospel's about, what does our culture teach? Jesus said, you can do nothing apart from me. You can't fix yourself, change yourself, redeem yourself. But then what do we say as a culture that identifies as 70% Christian? Well, here's one you've probably seen. You can do anything you set your mind to. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. We say, well, you can do anything if you set your mind to it. Here's another one. If it's going to be, it's up to me. Something's going to happen in this life. If, I'm, if anything's going to happen, I'm going to be the one that does it. It's all going to be me. And ultimately what that's built for you and I, if you go to Barnes & Noble after church today, the biggest section in Barnes & Noble is going to be the self-help section. All right? Here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to rip all these apart so we in church today and think, well, I guess I don't even have to drive, right? I can't do anything. God's the one that, no, no. Work ethic is good. Personal responsibility, good. But here's what I really want to just like look at today. Um, we live in a culture where if we say anything long enough and loud enough, it doesn't matter how false it is, it automatically becomes true. And so a lot of these things we've been saying to each other long enough and loud enough that we've never really stopped and said, wait a second, wait, 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 wait. Is that true? So let's look at each of these. The first one, you can do anything you set your mind to. And anything, you just got to set your mind, you just got to dream it. If I can dream it, I can do it, right? That's all it means. It's all you got to do. <laughs> Sorry about that. 
But here's the problem, and, and you know this to be true, and I know this to be true, and let's just say it. This, this isn't true. Like, if I came to you and I literally said, hey, I believe I can fly. And you said, man, that's a great song. I said, no, no, but for real, I can fly. And you're like, you're 230 pounds and you don't have the bone structure to fly. You're not a bird. And I'm like, dude, I've set my mind to it. I'm going to do it. And I go up on the roof and you're like, uh-uh. And I'm like, yeah, watch this, bro. I believe it. And I jump. You're going to have a mess to clean up on the sidewalk. Because every one of us, if we really think about this, we know that we have limitations. We know we have deficiencies. Like, I'm never going to qualify for the U.S. Olympic gymnastics team. I'm just not. And the fact that you're laughing confirms that. <laughs> the problem is, like, if we have this mindset that I can do anything if I just set my mind to it, this is not only opposite of what the gospel says, this creates in us when we fail, not if we fail, because you're going to fail, hopelessness and despair. This feeling of, I, I don't mean anything to anyone. I don't mean anything to myself or to God or to anyone around me because I'm just a failure and I'm no good at anything. Let's look at this one. If it's going to be, it's up to me, right? Good old-fashioned American self-reliance. This feels really good. We all love a story of a self-made man that started from rags and worked his way up to riches. And man, everything he's got, he's worked for it. That feels very good to us and great to us. But the problem with this is it's a little bit naive and downright absurd to believe that anyone in this room possesses this kind of power. I don't care how successful you are in business. I don't care how much money you've made. I don't care about all the things that you've built for yourself. God is the one that gave you that talent. God is the one that gave you those opportunities. God is the one who gifted you with your intelligence and your business acumen. And he opened doors and closed doors and he appointed your boundaries and put you where you're at. So when we in our arrogance say it's all me, that's shaking a fist at God. If it's going to be, it's up to God, not you or me. Of course we have personal responsibility. Of course we work hard. Of course we're responsible for what he's given us. But don't you see what this has done? Like this has created in us this belief that we're fully responsible for all the good that happens to us. And this creates in us a kind of arrogance and unappreciative attitude towards the help we've received from God and towards the help we've received from other people. Like when the professional athlete that's seven foot four playing in the NBA slam dunks and all he's got to do is this, like raise his arm above his head and then he pounds his chest and does this. I'm like, bro, like you didn't make yourself seven four. What are you bragging about? And we've created a culture and a context where this is kind of what we do when something good happens to us. Instead of giving glory to God and honor to God and thanks to the people around us, we take all the credit because it's become about us. And then we've created this culture of self-help, which is a bit ironic because first of all, if you're picking up a self-help book that someone else wrote, they're the one helping you, not yourself. As, as the great theologian George Carlin pointed out. Um, ultimately, everybody knows this isn't true. You, you know if you're in a plane and that plane starts going down, nobody's crying out, oh, myself, or self, help me. Because all of us know, like, we're, we're, we don't admit it, but all of us know deep down if the pressure gets turned up high enough, there's an instinctual cry in the deepest part of our humanity that goes, oh my God. Because you know the answer to fixing you isn't you. You know that. 
Everything broken in you in the world cannot be fixed by you. Anytime someone comes to you and says it, just a little positive thinking or a little bit of good vibes or 10 ways to have a new spouse by Friday or five ways to do this or three ways, they're lying to you. And they're trying to sell you something. The, the problem with this line of thinking is, is we live complex, challenging lives. Here on this earth, we live under the curse of sin. And that means we have complex, challenging relations. We have real issues. We have messy, messy situations. Anytime somebody comes to us with these promises, or you just do X, Y, and Z, here's a magic pill or a silver bullet, all this does is oversimplifies reality and the solutions to your problems. Jesus said it this way. He said, in this world, you will have troubles. It's messy. It's hard. But be brave. I've defeated the world. And not you. You can't do it. I can do it, though. I've already won the victory. Paul would later write, as he was in prison, cramped, and he, he, he was beaten, and he had blood all down his back, he would write, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. He didn't hold to these delusions about his own power. It was God, not him, not you, not me. And the self-help industry depends entirely on the competence of self to save. You cannot save, fix, or redeem yourself. Every one of us in this room, whether we admit it or not, deep down we know that we need a savior outside of ourselves. But I'm the problem, not the solution. And Jesus said it this way, and we just read it, apart from me, you can do nothing. See, I think what happens a lot of times is, is, like we said, these messages are being preached to us so loudly and so often from our culture. We come into relationship with Jesus and we try to live this thing called the Christian life. And we end up leaning more on what culture says rather than what Jesus says it means to live the Christian life. And so what I've seen end up happening is we see all these commands of Jesus. We see all these things the Word of God says about living the life, and we begin to try to do all these things on our own, on our own efforts. It's all about me, just kind of my willpower and white-knuckling and pulling myself by my own bootstraps, and I'm just going to do it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And what ends up happening is when we fail, not if we fail, because you will fail, I will fail, this leads to this kind of despair. And I've tried the Christian life. I've tried the church thing. I can't do it. I'm not a church person. I'm not like the rest of those people. I'm not good like the rest of those people. I'm just bad. I'm just, I can't do it. This kind of despair that oftentimes we use as an excuse to not fellowship with the people of God or try again. Or even worse yet, when we succeed, it's this kind of self-righteousness. And we look around and we're like, man, I'm nailing it. Look at all I've done, man. I got a quiet time every single morning. I've read this every morning. Man, I've been to all these conferences and seminars and these books. I've been trained on this way of spiritual warfare. When I go to small group, man, they are lucky that I'm in that small group because I have an answer for everything. And ultimately, what this does on either end of the coin, whether despair or self-righteousness, is this ultimately dilutes your faith into a Christless exercise of your own power. Where the focus of the Christian life is not on Jesus, it's on you. It's on me. And church becomes a place where we come together and show off. <laughs> so I really think if we leaned into what God's word says, what we discover is that we are called to live 
right in the middle of a tension. Very important one. See, sometimes tension is not negative. We, we say like, man, there's tension in my marriage, there's tension in the workplace, and that, that is kind of negative, but sometimes tension is a good thing. Like this guitar here has a string on it, and that string is being held tight with just the right amount of tension, and it can produce beautiful music. Too much tension, the string breaks. Too little tension, the string rattles, and no music can come out. In the Word of God, there is healthy tensions of seemingly contradictory ideas that a lot of times we want to say it's either this or it's this, but the reality is it's both. I want to share with you one. This tension of God's sovereign grace that changes us and grows us into all that we should be. This is a hallmark of the gospel. You can't fix yourself. You can't change yourself. God's the one that does the work in you and is a sovereign act of grace. You can't take credit for that. On the other side of that tension are all these verses that talk about the responsibility that you have and I have to draw near to Christ and to surrender to that process of letting him change us. And so often I see people fall on one side of the tension or the other. I see people fall on this side of, man, it's just him working on me. So, man, I got all these habits and I'm not really doing anything with it because he's the one has got to do it. And I see people going to this side of it and, man, I, I just, huh. And they just turn into little these neurotic, neurotics for Jesus, right? I'm going to live the Christian life this year if it kills me. And I think if we live right in the middle and say, man, I, I can't change myself, but I know the one that can. I can't fix myself, but I know the one that can. And my responsibility is not to try to change myself. My responsibility is to make it a priority in my life every day to draw near to him and let him change me and cleanse me from the inside out. Because I have no delusions about my own power, my own strength. I'm not as awesome as I think I am. And that is the best news that I could ever admit to myself. The Apostle Paul would write this to the Philippian church. He said, therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only my presence, but much more in my absence. He says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's talking about personal responsibility. He's talking about spiritual disciplines. He's talking about positioning yourself in a place to where you can experience the presence of God and the word of God and commune with the spirit of God. But that's your responsibility. And he says with fear and trembling, like this healthy fear of God because you revere and you respect all that he is as the sovereign creator of the universe as the one that dwells in inapproachable light that you and I like, have no business getting near, but through the redemption of Christ, he covers us, and that's the only way we can enter his presence. So with fear and trembling, we understand, my goodness, what has he done for me? This is beautiful, this is amazing. But also, we have fear and trembling over what could happen to us if we are outside of that. Like, I hope every man in this room has a healthy fear and trembling of what could happen in your life if you were completely taken over by that addiction of pornography. I hope it keeps you up at night. I hope it haunts you what could happen to your marriage and what could happen to your children and what could happen to your work and what could happen to you if instead of you obeying God and drawing near to God and letting him change you, you just surrendered over to that sin. And you work this thing out and you live this thing out and you draw near to the only one that can change you and you hit your face every morning and cry out and say, God, I can't do it. I know you can. And Paul said, it is God who works in you. Hallelujah. And you've got responsibility to draw near to him, to work this thing out, but man, ultimately it is God who's working in you to will and to act 
to fulfill his good purpose, that he saved you to bear fruit, that he saved you to bring glory to his name and to love the people around you. And you can't do it on your own. It is God doing it in you. But you have a responsibility to draw near. Let's just try harder. Go down to verse number nine and we'll finish up. Jesus says this, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. I'm going to read that again because we need to hear that again. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is one of the most incredible passages of Scripture anyone in this room could ever read. <laughs> Jesus turns to these guys, these followers, these, the, the first Christians, right? The 12 men that would take this movement onward. He said, man, you've been clean because of the word that I've spoken to you be redeemed by my blood. And now watch this. As the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Like this intimacy and love within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Jesus extends that to the people that would call on his name. And he reveals the depths of his love for us. As the Father has loved the Son, the perfect, worthy, holy, and blameless, spotless Lamb of God, he turns to his disciples and he says, because of my sacrifice and my word and my blood, I love you even in the midst of your rebellion, even in the midst of your sin, even in the midst of your brokenness, even in the midst of your depravity, I know every part of you and I love every part of you just as the Father loves me. I don't understand that. And if you really see that, like you can understand it. But you're not called to understand it. You're called to receive it in faith. And to continue, remain and abide in it. And sometimes I just need reminding, like the hardest portions of the Bible for me to believe have nothing to do with Jesus, like walking on water or raising the dead. I can believe he can do that. It's like that story he tells in Luke 15 of the son that spends his father's inheritance on prostitutes and comes running back and is like, man, I don't even deserve to be called a slave. And the dad wraps him up and says, man, you're home. I love you. Let's throw a party. I look at that and I go, man, maybe God loves you like that, but I don't know if he loves me like that. But I'm not called to understand it. I'm just called to receive it in faith and let, let that change me from the inside out. And Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. The test to see if we're truly abiding in Christ's love is not if we've had some mystical experience. It's not, man, I listened to Ocean 17, time, 17 times this morning on Spotify and I got chill bumps every time and I'm abiding in the Lord no, it, it, Jesus says this. He says it's, it's if you're being fully obedient to his commands. If we are obeying what he has said, that is an indication that we're truly resting our identity that produces in us faith and obedience. And obedience to his word is not something we always feel like doing. But sometimes simply being obedient is what God requires and asks from us. I, I love what C.S. Lewis said, and, and turns out that if I'm not smart enough to like figure out how to say it differently, I'll just quote C.S. Lewis. So, you know, there's a little tip to keep me humble. So 
This is what C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity. He said, nobody can always have devout feelings. Isn't that a relief? Can we all just breathe a sigh of relief? Like, oh, nobody can always have devout feelings. Man, there are going to be mornings when you wake up and you're not going to feel it. But what he says is, even if we could, feelings are not what God principally cares about. Christian love, either towards God or towards man, is an affair of the will. If we're trying to do his will, we are obeying the commandment, thou shalt love the Lord thy God. He will give us feelings of love, if he pleases. We can't create them for ourselves, and we must not demand them as a right. This is what Lewis is saying. He's saying that sometimes obedience comes before emotion. That sometimes you just have to do what God says, and he's the one that's got to give you the feeling, and it comes later. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That the Christian life was never intended to be a shallow, cold, stale, and ritualistic following of a set of behavioral practices. That God wants more for you than that. It is a life that is characterized by unspeakable joy. That is different from happiness. Happiness its word root is in the word happenstance, which is synonymous with circumstance. So anytime somebody comes to me and says, I just know God wants me to be happy, I go, okay, well, show me that verse. And they can't because it's not in there. God wants more for you than happiness. God wants in you joy because in this world you will have trouble. It's going to be hard sometimes. But joy means even as the world is burning around us, I know who I am in Christ and he has given me joy in my position as his son. And so I know that I'll be okay even as everything is falling apart all around me. It's unspeakable joy. I can't even put it into words. Soul satisfying peace and love that follows a glad hearted surrender and obedience to the commands of God. This is what the prophet Habakkuk wrote, even as a pagan army was on its way to destroy the people of God. He said, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. And we look at that and we go, man, the, the dude's broke. He has absolutely nothing. Everything's falling apart. Not only that, there's an army on the way to destroy him, yet he rests in his identity because he's abiding in who he is in the Lord. And he says, I have joy in the face of this. This is what Jesus wants for you. This is what he wants for me. This brings us back to our original question. How do I change? How do I become better? How do I become all that God wants me to be? I'm... I'm I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet, but I know just in this room, there are those of you right now that are fighting and fighting and fighting an addiction or habit or mindset, and you're exhausted. And you're feeling crushed under this burden because you've hit your head against the wall so many times, and you keep doing the same things over and over and over again, and you want to change, but you don't know how. So what Jesus would say first and foremost is he would say, have you truly surrendered your heart and life to me? Are you trying to do this on your own and kind of tacking Jesus on because culturally this is like what we do to be a good moral citizen? 
Do you truly have saving faith? Is it about more than going to heaven when you die? Or is it just fire insurance? And he would say, are you resting in my love? Are you receiving your identity from him every single day where you're not defined by your job or your career? You're not defined by your money, whether you have it or you don't have it. You're not defined by what other people say about you, whether they criticize you, they applaud you. You are resting in the fact that if he says, that's my son or that's my daughter, nothing is going to change that. Because when we rest in that identity, this produces in us faith and obedience. And are you obeying his commands? Some of us are just sitting on our hands waiting for something to happen before we just get obedient. Thinking that like the heavens will split and Charlton Heston's voice will come out of nowhere and a choir of angels, make disciples. Oh, maybe I should make disciples. And Jesus said, go make disciples. I'm going to turn that around to every person in this room. What are we waiting on? Maybe we're not bearing fruit because like, we're, we're just spiritually obese. <laughs> going to church every single week and we're prepping and we're getting trained. We're going to conferences and reading books and listening to Christian radio. And the reality is we're like a football team training and training and practicing and practicing. We, we've never even stepped on the field to play a game. What if we just obeyed and stopped overcomplicating it? And have you surrendered to the pruning? And if you're anything like me, there are things in your life that God will not let you off the hook for. <coughs> he comes knocking on the door of your heart over and over and over and says, let me have this, let me have this, let me have this, let me have this. And in the moment, you have a choice to either say yes, Lord, or no. I don't know what that is. You know what that is, and the Lord knows what that is. You can't hide from him. Maybe you've got everybody in this room fooled, but he sees and he knows. And you are actually hurting yourself, not helping yourself. And ultimately for all of us, here's what I would ask. Are you just trying harder? You're trying to white-knuckle this thing. You're trying to, to fulfill all of the requirements that God has for you. You're trying to follow all the rules just so he won't zap you or be mad at you. You'll be a good person, or are you drawing closer to him and letting him be your everything? Are you acting like, man, all that God wants for me is just to be a slave, but he saved me, and then I'm just supposed to do this list of things like God says that he didn't give you a spirit of slavery. He gave you a spirit of adoption that you cry out to him, Abba, Father, as his son or his daughter, that, that sons and daughters are, are adopted to love, not to work. Of course, they do work as they are loved, but like my wife and I, when we were getting ready to have kids, didn't sit there and go, hey, you know what? We could really use a slave around here. Um, let's have a kid. And we had our son because we love him. And yeah, I hope as he grows, he obeys me and he, he does what I ask him to do with joyful, glad-hearted obedience, even when he's a teenager. All of you that are laughing, that scares me. I'm not going to ask you why you're laughing. But like right now, man, he can't do anything for me. He can throw up on me and poop on my pants, but that's about it. In the same way, you can add nothing to God that he doesn't already have. What he wants from you and he wants for you is everything. It's the same answer. What does God want from me? Everything. What does God want for me? Everything. 
He wants you. He wants you. He loves you. And as you draw near to him and let yourself be transformed by his love, it will change you from the inside out until gradually look more and more and more like Jesus and we truly become his church, a bride spotless because we've been washed by his word and washed by his spirit. Would you bow your heads with me? Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. We can do nothing to save ourselves. We can do nothing to fix ourselves. We can do nothing to change ourselves. In this place today, we are entirely dependent on your grace and mercy. Lord, for the men in this room, make us into the husbands and fathers that we need to be. Lord, for those of us that struggle with this sense of pride that we think masculinity is somehow pretending and charading that we've got it all together, Lord, let us be poor in spirit and come to you and say, God, I can't do it. Let us know that our strength is found in you, not in ourselves. For the women in this room, God, that struggle with self-worth and that struggle with feeling good enough, like they're a bad mom or a bad wife, and so they're faking it until they make it. Lord, let them find freedom and just surrender, bringing it before you and just saying, God, I can't do this anymore. I need you. God, for every person in this room that's dealing with an addiction or a struggle or an inconsistency or a shortcoming, I don't have to know what they are, but God, you know what they are. Give us the grace and mercy to believe your word and understand that it's not about us trying harder, but drawing closer. Make us into your people. Make us into your church. All around this room, there's communion. This is a reminder this morning that the God of the universe went to a cross for you to pay for your sins and your rebellion and your depravity, that you can be made righteous and clean before him if by faith you receive it. And if you have by faith received his sacrifice for you, you're welcome to take that communion. The only thing we ask is that you repent of your sins and you ask him to examine your heart before you do that. To my left, your right, and to my right, your left, there's people up here that would love to pray for you about anything that's going on in your life, whether that is an addiction or whether that is a struggle, whether it's just something that you're, just, you're, you're feeling overwhelmed by. Let us pray for you. That's why the church is here. It's the body of Christ. You're not supposed to bear it on your own. Let yourself accept the reality that you are not as strong as you think you are, and that is okay. Because in your weakness, he is strong. God, we love you, and we thank you. Holy Spirit, do a work in our hearts. Change us to look more like Jesus. We love you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys.